This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The genesis of AI, it's really about taking a human task that's repetitive and just converting it into automatic. I look at data the same way. And I saw that there's an assembly line of information coming out. What if we could identify the unique patterns in this information or the signals and pull them out and identify them? Would that tell us something about the quality of the content? And sure enough, as we ran news through the cycle, we were able to identify some There's some very simple things like, does the headline match the body? Are unknown sources cited? Are there ad hominem attacks? Is there a dog whistle? And before you know it, you start to find that, yes, they are present everywhere in all of these stories. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Over the last decade, it's gotten harder and harder to read the news. And not just because some of the outrageous things happening in the news and in our politics. Sometimes it's hard to tell if the person who wrote the headline for a news story or the tweet promoting it has actually read the story itself. With the constant pace of the news cycle, it's hard to keep up with figuring out how accurate a news story is, how reliable the story is, or what type of partisan lean an outlet or a news author might have. Today, I'm going to talk with someone who's making it easier to answer those questions. Pat Kondo is the founder and CEO of Seeker Technologies. He has more than 30 years of experience bringing cutting-edge search technologies to the market. His technologies have provided advanced search capabilities to the defense and intelligence communities. He was the founder and CEO of Convera, which the CEO investment arm Inktel invested in twice for its advancements in pattern recognition and semantic search concepts. And in his early career... This might be the coolest part. He was involved in developing the navigation systems for the space shuttle and the MX missile program. As if one of those wasn't impressive enough. Pat Kondo, welcome to Politicology. No, thank you for having me. This is going to be such a great conversation, (laughs) man. But before before we start, I got to hear about your background in search technology. Before we get to the news and how problematic it is, uh, you... You went from working on navigation systems to search technologies? So they're the same. So (laughs) let's start at the beginning, right? When you think about it. So what does a navigation system do? It takes you somewhere that's pre-programmed. It takes you from point A to point B. And the idea is that all along the way, it has figured out what the variables are to get you from point A to point B. And, you know, 35 years ago, uh, you know, the size of a computer that was sitting in the nose cone of a missile or in the space shuttle was, you know, the equivalent of something that uh, was today's calculator. And so you had to figure out how you were going to take 
all of that complexity and get a rocket from uh, from parts of uh, the United States to the moon. And so that that taught me uh, quite a bit of about how I wanted to live and go forward with my next part of my career, which is I then left there, went to work at uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, which was you know, the equivalent of the fastest growing computer system in the world. And I got to do everything that you'd want to do um, growing up in that space. You could do hardware, software, you could do, you could build all kinds of different technologies and experiment everywhere. But my, somehow, some way, I ended up back in search. And search is really navigation, except it's open-ended. It's about discovery. And so I love the fact that my company that I founded with Allen and Company in New York, uh, Excalibur Technologies, was all about uh, giving people the ability to discover information where they had a little bit of a clue, uh, they wanted to find their way to getting something interesting, and then it was actionable. And so I worked my way through that and uh, have been in search ever since. And one of the things about search, which is really cool, is that it depends upon the amount of data and the complexity of data. And it's never ceased to accelerate year after year, more data from more sources generating from every kind of device in the world. And we're only at the beginning. Um, Somebody told me a few years back that there are more video created in one day by drones than the last hundred years ever produced. So when you think about um, what we're really looking at um, and how I got to where I am today on this is it's all about um, how do you separate uh, the signal from the noise? That's the key. And if you start to look at what is happening in the world of uh, media and communications, it's all about the, a tremendous amount of transactions taking place where information's coming in and people are consuming it real time. So how does one pull out the valuable signals and give somebody uh, a way to navigate through that so that you clear the way and they have a very... Um, a, they can develop their own point of view based upon critical thinking. And I think that's the point of Seeker. That's kind of where I'm going. But I believe that's one of the biggest problems in the world today. Okay. I see how they're related, navigating toward an endpoint. Where do you want to go, right? Or really, what are you looking for? Can you talk a little bit about the skill set that you brought to, to, that you're bringing to Seeker, really? But what is it, what is it that you, have done? What's your, what has your role been in these things? So, you know, so I, um, the, my role has really been two things. I, I consider myself an idea person, but what I really need are the engineering groups, the, the scientists, the, the, the people that can take the idea and turn it into action. And so I think one of the, the most interesting things in my career is that I've always been able to find those engineers. I've always been able to find, you know, the critical resources to be able to execute on the plan. And uh, I think that's really important. And, you know, today that that's what it's all about. Human, the, 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 the value of the IP walks out the door every day, as they say. And so keeping people, finding people, you need to give them something that's important. And I think that the generation that we're in today they want to work on something meaningful. They want to work on something that has a legacy. They want to work on something that they can uh, ascribe to. And 
I think that's one of the reasons why we've been successful. From the moment I heard about what you're up to, I was immediately uh, hooked and curious because it's so meaningful. Setting aside, and we'll talk about this, how successful it is, is going to be how all the challenges standing in the way, but just the effort alone seems to me so important given the information landscape as it currently sits and, and how much worse it's getting. So on politicology, we've spent a lot of time, especially more recently, talking about all of the problems in the information economy and the incentives of the media environment, the, the really corrosive incentives. We've talked about, you know, last week we talked about chat GPT, we've talked about deep fakes, we've talked about, uh, you know, the proliferation of AI in, uh, especially in information now in news sources. Um, I'd love to hear you describe the landscape as you see it, the problems that are presented uh, by these, by the, the, with the way the incentive structure has shaped the economy, the information economy, and, um, and give folks a sense of what you think are the most um, uh, pressing problems before we get to um, what some of these solutions might be? I think there's two active forces taking place here. One is that we need to recognize that two-thirds of the world live in non-democratic societies. And when you think about it from that perspective, those, those governments uh, are focused on not only creating and keeping that environment, but extending it. And so over the last 30 years, what we've seen, I believe, is penetrating, you know, the ecosystem of democracy are views that are not democratic. And the more and more um, that we have, an, the more of an open society we have, where we went from uh, broadcast TV to then we went to social media, the more we open up ourselves, because that's what a free society does, never imagining that the other society that is, ag that is against freedom is for oppression and control is using that data and how they use it has become more and more evident today. And the, the backbone of it all is behavioral sciences. How they, they understand how the society in America operates. They understand from looking at the data we give them, um, it's almost like we've handed them the, you know, the blueprint on how to create chaos, how to cause disruption, how to create division, how to, how to you know, be controlled um, with, because of the way we have an open society. So they've used what we've built against us because... You know, we have a constitution, we have a huge budget in defense, um, but as an open society, uh, cyber is wide open for anybody. And I think that is one opposing force that's come in. Now, that in itself shouldn't be enough. But the second side of the coin is that um, these same dis technologies, whether it's, you know, the big tech companies, whether it's social media research, when they came in, they disrupted the traditional media landscape. So uh, subscriptions went away. Uh, classified ads went away. And they became the media companies, traditional media companies became dependent on the tech companies. And from that point on, it changed the style of, I believe, journalism. It changed the style and approach of journalists and the media companies because they, they needed money to operate. The big tech companies 
offered the money to operate, but it came at a price. And that price was that we need to sell ads next to your content. And if your content isn't exciting or it doesn't create an emotional relationship with your audience, you're never going to have an ad next to it. You're never going to move to the top of the list or if and therefore, you'll go. You'll become extinct. And so, those two forces, I think, have created what we see today, um, where we have uh, issues around trusting the government, um, issues in the financial system, issues in uh, our government in terms of what is classified as misinformation and what isn't. We have uh, health-related problems. All of these things are what has surfaced over the last few years as a result of these kind of opposing forces where you have nation states uh, that would love to see chaos, would love to see division. Uh, by one account, I saw that um, the, the Chinese po- have over uh, 500 uh, million social media posts a year. Um, we see, and that's just the beginning, right? There are half a dozen other countries like that. So while the nation states work their magic, um, domestic activists work their magic. And when you put these two together, this amplification um, across the board, I believe, creates the, the world where people distrust everything they, everything they see. And, and so the idea that is emerging everywhere is how does one solve that? But then the solution itself becomes um, debatable. Does the government solve it? Does private industry solve it? Uh, do a nonprofit foundation solve it? Who solves it? Yeah, well, when you're talking about to take two, two of the big threads that you just opened up there, one being the, um, you know, a free and open side, the crown jewel of a democratic country like the United States is our free and open society, right? And so when you're when when the free and open society, the thing that makes you successful in the first place becomes the vulnerability, then what do you do when that is under attack, right? What is the response? And you can understand the you can understand a reflex toward authoritarianism, right? But how do we protect against those those baser instincts to shut everything down? What what is the appropriate response? I think we look back in history to see how other parts of the society respond to those things. So all the way up to the 1970s, there were um, hundreds of credit reporting agencies. And then it was determined how biased, how um, uh, unfair and imbalanced and how in some ways usurious these organizations were. So the Fair Credit Act came in and leveled the playing field, right? Or we saw for 70 years, the Consumer Guide Report that reports on how they evaluate electronics and other products because truth in advertising is a big issue. Or we saw, um, we saw the, 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 the book came out, uh, Hidden Persuaders, right, as television hit the scene where these subliminal suggestions were meant. So every time there is, there is a change and there's a network effect and enough people are affected and people start to rise up, the solutions have come. And I think where we are right now is in the middle of that. People, prior to, I would say, some of the Netflix shows like Social Media, uh, Social Dilemma, and prior to now, 
experts focused on what's happening. A cultural awakening of of this problem. Yeah, Yeah. and it had to almost come from the consumer side because the governments all know. They see what's happening, right? They knew right from the beginning, the minute the COVID um, virus began and all the talks about uh, the vaccines, you know, thousands of messages were pouring in from all of the, you know, the, the countries that were creating doubt and chaos. So I think we're at the right point. I think it took almost some of these cataclysmic things for people to believe it, that they're, when it, when it affects your health and wealth, then people pay attention. And that's what's happened. Yeah, that's a good heuristic. The other thing you opened up was the state of journalism. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. What, what has journalism become now? Journalism, in my opinion, there are there are some really fantastic investigative journalistic reports, and there are some people that have done uh, tremendous work, and they follow just about all of the standards that have been set over time in journalism. And there are hundreds of those standards, and there are and there are all sorts of um, examples to follow. But in the day and age of instant consumption and everyone with a cell phone can tell a story, whether it's a video story or uh, whatever, they, the, the ability to separate signal from the noise. And I believe that there are thousands, if not millions of people that report stories that really aren't journalists. They haven't been trained as journalists. They are more like reporters as opposed to journalists. And I think there's a big difference there. Yeah, what is and the I, think, I think the difference is that a journalist follows standards. A reporter sees something and, you know, conveys it. And the, the touch point is that the emotional charge that's put on it. That, to me, decides, like, there's a payload and the projectile, and what they're putting on the end of all of this is the emotional charge. Like, if it doesn't hit anger, or if it doesn't hit fear, or it doesn't hit greed, or it doesn't hit happiness, then it's not going to be distributed. It's not going to be looked at, where a journalist, that's not their objective. Their objective is to tell the story with as most with as much fact and as much objectivity as they can to an audience that could that is affected or should know about something. A reporter is not. A reporter lights up the sky. You know what they call, you know, the thing inside the firework when you light it goes up in the air? It's called a report. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, what is Seeker? We started out with an idea about um, how to use AI machine learning uh, to take a look at the quality of information that was coming in from uh, all over the world in uh, ending up in, you know, ending up on, you know, in, in these different news reports or published media. And the idea was that... Um, there are some basic concepts in journalism that are not being met. And there are some real simple things like, what if we could, ahead of the election period, and this is what we were thinking, ahead of election uh, in, uh, in 2020, um, we, took a, we, we looked at what happened in 2016, um, not with the election, but with 
what happened with um, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. And we, we saw how um, Cambridge Analytica used the data that it collected and was able to, uh, that data was used in ways to uh, influence, say, American society. And um, it was just a symptom of really everything that was going on. And so we said, what if we could identify ahead of time that those kinds of tactics were being deployed in the news. Wouldn't that be interesting? And um, that's something we could do because we have a search technology. So the search technology, you know, has to identify what's relevant. But what I'm talking about is that there are other signals about relevancy that search engines don't pick up. And it's not in these signals um, are really about quality. So if you step back and you say to yourself, everywhere that you go, there's a rating system that you follow, whether you buy a bottle of wine, whether you get a mortgage, whether you look at movies on TV, whether you look at uh, music, there's a rating system. But the largest sources of information in the world are unrated. Why is that? Why is that? And so we step back and we said, this is where we need to apply machine learning and AI. And you started off the top of the show with about how you're interested in the effect of that. Well, if you think about the genesis of AI, it, it, it's really about taking a human task that's repetitive and just converting it into automatic. And, to, and, and so if you think about like robotics and you think about assembly lines, that's what's happening. Well, I look at, um, data the same way. And I saw that there's an assembly line of information coming out. What if we could identify the unique patterns in this information or the signals and pull them out and identify them? Would that tell us something about the quality of the content? And sure enough, as we ran news through the cycle, we were able to identify some there's some very simple things like, does the headline match the body? Are unknown sources cited? Are there ad hominem attacks? Is there a dog whistle? And before you know it, you start to find that, yes, they are present everywhere in all of these stories. And if you look at some of the principles of high-quality journalism, you're supposed to exclude those things, right? So we started to say, okay, there's a pattern here, right? So let's apply the machine to this and let's, um, let's see what it looks like. And so we took tens of thousands of articles every day and we examined them, pulled them apart, and we said, here are the patterns. These are the easy things to find. And then we started to look deeper and we said, look, every person there are these cognitive biases that exist. There's dozens and dozens of them. How do they permeate these articles? How do they permeate these? And we started to say, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if we put a score on this? And the score is really about credibility. And it's not about to say this is right or this is wrong because we don't know that, right? All we know is that this is a higher quality based on the standards of journalism that we've looked at, or it's a lower quality. And if you're going to rely on this, you should know. And so that's the premise. Putting ourselves in the shoes of a consumer, a news consumer, what is the, 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 what you're trying to do is give people a way to be better consumers of news, more informed consumers of news. Talk about this from the experience of someone who's uh, a, a casual reader of 
CNN, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, The Atlantic, right? Um, uh, what what is it? What is the problem that you're trying to address for someone who just casually reads the news to stay informed on what's going on? You know, our approach is that this is the beginning of something, not a static point in time. Because I I believe that what we saw with the the divisions in America and other democracies is that there needs to be a way for people to converge and to converge. You need to have, you need to have the ability to look at what I would call content and context, develop a point of view. And if I'm feeding you the same information every day, and that's all you're looking at, your point of view becomes skewed. So today that's how it's, constructed. You stay in your echo chamber, you you move within it, um, but you don't really leave it. And pretty soon you don't even know there's another point of view. And so um, if you test what we are trying to do when Roe versus Wade came uh, and it hit, the I Dob- moved the Dobbs decision. I moved yeah. uh, the lever on our control to say, let me see what everybody on the right is saying about it. And then I moved it and let me see what everybody on the left is saying you'd think we were two different countries. And that is the essence of the problem that I'm trying to solve, is that we're one country, we have multiple points of view. Maybe I don't agree with everything that the opposing group would have, but I'd like to understand their point of view. And if I can understand their point of view, then we get stronger as a country. If I can't understand their point of view, we, are, we continue to be marginalized, fractionalized, and ultimately decline. And I think that that's the biggest danger. If you look back in time, you know, not many civilizations go beyond two or 300 years, right? We're at that inflection point where, and most of them, you know, rot from within. And I, and, and I can see the presence of uh, foreign nationals, the presence of domestic activists, and the lack of critical thinking as that combustible engine. And that's what I concern myself most. So if... If the generation coming up can understand that there are different points of view, they can understand things like media literacy, they can, st- they can understand how to take different facets of an argument and form an opinion versus being trapped in a particular vertical silo, then we've accomplished what we want. Bringing the value of pluralism into the information environment where it's really been eradicated by technology. And money. And I'll tell you why I say that, because another analysis that we've been doing is if you take some of the biggest issues that we face in America and you would go to almost all your sources of information at the top of the list would be the same companies that are there every day. So where are all the diverse voices? If it's a story about something affecting women, what's the percentage of women reporter, you know, journalists that you see versus men? If it's a story affecting Asian Americans or Black Americans or Latin Americans, do you see any split? Do you know what you see is the same top heavy view from the same groups and the same level of um visibility. The others are way back in the search results, way down in the uh, bottom of uh, maybe they're local, maybe they're regional, but they certainly are not national. 
that's another big issue because what's happening there is that those that the people that are not heard essentially are in a smaller cycle um, and it's one of the biggest human fallacies that we have which is that just because you hear a loud voice say something doesn't mean it's right yeah but there are obviously biological reasons for that and we're trying to transcend our own biology <laughs> in order to evolve <laughs> <laughs> well the, the, yeah. the, the, the other thing that's that, that that's really true is that by nature we, we use the word misinformation a lot but by nature um, that, that that characterizes humans because you know you go all the way back in, in in time and you know that's how people protected themselves that's how people gain control. And that's what's going on now. It's about protection and control. And I, I mean, I, a long time ago, if someone if someone was being very very loud for a long time, you, th- there's something important happening that I need to pay attention to because my survival might be at stake. Yeah, and and but today it's 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 more like uh, misdirection, you know. So you so the 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 voices on these different media platforms are all saying the same thing over and over and over again, yet, so it, you would think that the large percentage of the population must believe it if it's being stated that way, but that's not the case. Yeah, and this, this doesn't even begin to address the nationalization of every single story, right? The, the, um, the, the, the dominance of national news media narratives as opposed to what's actually going on in your community. Well, take it up a level, right? So when, 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 when you use the word national, um, that's the same word that a nation state uses, right, when they control media. And so um, one of the big concerns that everybody has is that, okay, we've elevated a concern about false and misleading information or coordinated inauthentic material, but do we want the government to have the ability yeah. to control that? And of course, every most people in America are against Overregulation by the government. So, what's the source of it? Well, it can't. The source can't be the very people that are emitting it because they won't control it. If it can't be the government, then where does it come from? And then, of course, the next thing is, oh well, you would say maybe a foundation or a nonprofit. And then they say, well, what's the source of their money? Yeah. And so you have. <laughs> so you go around and yeah. around until yeah. um, somebody. You know, so you till you spiral up and you get who gets to say dozens of small companies that try to say I can solve that I can solve that right and then the big question that everyone will have well what makes you right right so um, in that really where um, I think the next level is that again when you talk about AI um, you talk about the fact that it it can run models but there are. That, but there's something developing called explainable AI. And that is that an explainable AI means that you have to be able to, ex- to show that what you're putting into the system and what you're getting out of the system and that, that the results of those things are not random. Mm. And so that's what's, and so explainable AI, because if I tell you, that the AI says the following set of things. You might say, yeah, but what's the input right. to create that model? Right. Yeah. So I have to be able to tell you what that is so that you could say, okay, now I can understand the output. So yeah. the input to my model is principles of journalism. 
That's my input. Mm. And so you could say, okay, I agree. There are 20, 30, 40 principles of journalism. I see you've programmed those so that when an article appears and any one of those signals goes off, you capture it. The next step is, okay, how did I get the score? Well, the score really is a result of how all those things play together. And you might say, okay, but how they play together, um, that's a variable. And I would say, in order to solve that, I will have a group of, let's call it expert journalists who come from a wide variety of experiences, look on a regular basis and examine what the AI is doing versus what a human would do until such time that I know so much about the content and about all methods of communication that a machine can exceed a human's capability. And that's kind of where we're headed. That's where you're going. That's where we're this going. This is fascinating. That's where we're going. Think about chess. Yeah. The, the, it took 10 years for uh, the computer to beat the grandmaster, and then it never lost. Yeah. And that's because there were something like 10 to the 25th power of possible moves yeah. on a chessboard. But once they were all known, yeah. they were known. And in today's world, you know, if you took like the Oxford Dictionary has 250,000 words in it. So if you calculate out what that is, it's some crazy number like 10 to the you know, 75th power. But there's enough compute power today to calculate every possible combination there. All you need to know is what do you want to pull out? Man. You know, I remember reading, not only did it never lose again, but I think more recently, it's, it took the same AI, the same engine, um, stripped out the rules and introduced the AI to chess and said, here, learn how to play. Mm -hmm. And immediately, without knowing the rules, it won. It beat the computer. The AI beat the... You know, yeah. Just, it's mind-boggling how fast this technology is, is evolving. And, right. And the consequences, I don't think we're even capable of, of imagining yet. What is fantastic about this, though, is that once upon a time, there was a notion that AI could be evil or could be bad or could cause, you know, world hunger and, you know, and decimation of, of humanity. But the flip side of that is that it becomes just another tool for humans to advance. And I think that that, that is how, and like anything, advancement sometimes there's a percentage that does does bad things, but in in general, the the advancement of AI and the ability to recognize uh, patterns at at a speed that no human could do is is bringing good to the world. Um, recently, I learned about how uh, the the use of pattern recognition in radiology is saving people's lives by identifying the formation of of tumors. Um, and, and, and these are the kind of things that, you know, could not be done 10 years ago. And you know, yes, of course it can be deployed, you know, in weapon systems and all these other things, but you, you need to rely on, uh, humans for that. And that's still the value of humans because computer is, doesn't know content. It doesn't have emotion. Um, a human does. And that, that's the governing factor. Yeah. I mean, we should acknowledge that there are very, very smart philosophers and ethicists who are still 
deathly afraid of what AI is going to do to civilization. And that's, that's an open question. I mean, there's a, there's a great thought experiment by a philosopher named Nick Bostrom. I think it's called the black urn, the, um, the urn of invention. It's called the urn hmm. of invention. Are you familiar with this? No. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it, the urn of invention goes something like, you know, uh, there's an urn and it's full of, um, uh, different colors of balls and you reach in, um, there's, 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 there's whites, there's white balls, black balls, gray balls, and the white balls are, they're all technology. They all represent some kind of technological innovation. We keep reaching in humanity keeps reaching in we're pulling out, um, technologies and lots of white balls are coming out and we're advancing, but sooner or later, we're going to pick a technology out of the urn that will destroy us that, that has the capacity to destroy us. And, um, I'm sure it's much more sophisticated and nuanced than I just described, but the, but the bottom line is we don't, we sometimes don't know. And I think the story, at least for the last 10, 20 years uh, of technology is that this is more broadly, I think the story of technology is that we don't keep up with how it transforms society. We don't keep up with how to deal with the consequences of it. And we end up playing catch up after the fact. And and it feels very much like that's where we are with now with social media, right? We're trying to play yeah. catch up with the havoc that it has wrecked on yeah, civilization. In 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 it it goes back to um, all the difficulties that all the scientists had yeah. who developed the atom bomb. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They 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 built it and and for wherever haunted about the the misuse of it, um, despite the fact that all those technologies and inventions went on to kind of revolutionize energy and travel and everything that, you know, we all take for advantage today. The fact that they invented that one terrible weapon haunted them for the rest of their lives. And I think that um, social media, although not in the same vein, has has turned where we we now have people, you know, looking at is this, is the, is the curation of it, is the management of it, is the um, the, the I don't, economic goal of it, has it now turned from something that was supposed to be really good and bring people together to something that's really bad and separated us yeah, all. Yeah. And, and I think you see, um, you know, these, these tectonic plates moving like the Elon Musk purchase of Twitter. Um, what is he doing there? What's his focus there? Uh, you see for the first time, the, um, chairman and CEO of AMA coming out saying, we have a duty as physicians to tell people um, what what's misinformation and what isn't because people are harming themselves or they're they're not understanding um, you know what they should be doing or not doing and even the the news from uh, the, the the builders of, of of our you know products the pharmaceutical companies come into question and then the government comes into question and before you know it distrust is across the entire ecosystem so. You know, once again, the, you know, things that were all set up to do good have, 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 you know, converged to do something that needs to be elevated up and, you yeah. know, addressed. Okay. So let's talk about consuming information. What, what differentiates Seeker then from another news search option like Google News, which we yep. use every single day? Yeah. What is, what is the difference? Um, and I'd love to get into what happens when you shift the focus in ranking from relevancy and personal preference to reliability. So at the end of the spectrum, the sometimes the most popular answer is not 
the most credible answer. So if we start with that, and if you if you think about it from that perspective, um, it changes everything because the most popular answer uh, is driven by. Let's take Google for example. It's driven by SEO. It's driven by how how much money the company has that is pushing um, that particular answer because they can push it from so many different dimensions that it shows up in the search results page. It's driven by advertising. And so sometimes the most popular answer is right. Sometimes it isn't. But the one that might be the most credible may never show up in the search result page. So what we do is we say, we're going to do two things. We're going to pull what is uh, the, the most popular answer, but we're also going to rank those answers. And by ranking them for credibility, it automatically shifts. So where sometimes the a least popular uh, answer comes to the top of the list, ahead of the most popular because it received a higher ranking. So if you set the score, if you say, I want to see all, uh, all those rated eight and above, I think that then it dramatically shifts most popular to most credible. If you just want most popular, meaning that's what everybody, what even, is everybody saying about this? Yeah, then not that, what's true about this. That's it. Yeah. And, uh, well, not, not what's true. What, what is the credibility of ah, this? Yeah. Be, um, the second thing that we that we try to do is you asked earlier about uh, political lean. Yeah, um, one of the things that we have identified is that in the last four years, the the level of of the, the political nature of just about every co- content, there's something that's entered into the conversation, and so we said, what if we could identify that? And what we did was we trained on millions of pages of congressional testimonies where they talked about what's left, what's right, what's center, what's a conservative, what's a liberal, you know, whatever names you want to put, Democrat, Republican, but we learned the definitions. And so now we have a level. I'm not even sure they know the definitions. (laughs) Well, there's some, some of them are a bit confused. Now there's a lot that don't have a political lean, like a breaking news story about a, a bomb that blew up might not have any, but a lot of stories do. And they, they're not just about politics. They're about health. They're about sports. They're about finance. They could be about climate, energy. You, if you detect one of those um, indicators, yeah. all of a sudden, it starts to change your perspective. Because if the story is written from a far right perspective, it's very different than it's from a far left. Or if there's no left or right, that story is even different. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to provide that transparency to people. So that's another big thing, yeah. which is what what are the what are the subliminal things that are about this article that you should know well it was written by this author who may be considered conservative but he actually is doing an op-ed for a media outlet that is considered left so the story shouldn't be tagged left it's the author themselves yeah. so we go down to the author and the article level we don't operate like a media company is left or right. Okay. Interesting. And so the other thing we do, which I think is another interesting thing is quote extraction. So like, for example, sorry, just to go back to that, to give people like real life examples, this might be, um, 
well, I guess I'm doing news media now, like cable news now, but you know, maybe the written equivalent of Pete Buttigieg going on Fox News, right? Right. Right. You're not going to rank that as a as a as a right leaning right. no. story, right? Because it's you're looking at the content and the and just the, the story itself, right? Yeah. So we're looking at the story. We're not and 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 um but the there's two other things that we that we've developed that I think are interesting. One is the quote extractor. So Oftentimes, the story is only the quote. And so you, you have hundreds of stories that come in about, let's say, the recent shooting in L.A., but they're all more or less the same except for one thing. Who's quoted? And if you can extract the quote, um, you almost don't have to even read the stories. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that... Um, that's one aspect of it. But the second aspect of it is how often do we see quotes that are misquoted? How often do we see someone take in a three-sentence quote the first and the third and forget the second? Hmm. And so the quotes tell the story. But then if you think about this, what if you use the quote as a search query and I said, you just quoted that your political position is about schools is X. What if I could use that as the search query and get all the quotes you've ever made over the last three years and build a timeline of what are you what are you really saying? Right. So we have the ability to go back and allow people to say, are you just being, you know, political for the day? Because last week you taught you a quote was this, and two weeks ago your quote was that, and three. And so you just got the attention of an army of opposition researchers. So it's it's (laughs) accountability, it's accountability, right? Yeah. It's accountability. So that's another big piece of this whole thing is um, we want people to be accountable because they're not today. When there's a story that comes out that's incorrect, where's the correction? They, oh, it never happens. You know, it's so funny. I talked to a, uh, a guy who's an investigative journalist, top of his field for a very long time at the paper of record. Uh, and I asked him this question. I said, uh, when a scandal breaks in the newsroom, this is the New York Times. Yeah. When the scandal breaks, uh, we have this tidal wave of coverage. What happens in a newsroom when something when when there's a retraction or when the person apologizes, right? Or they or they what happens in a newsroom? And he said it is ne- the they will only ever cover something like that to the extent that it allows them to reprise the original <laughs> scandal story. Right? Yeah. It has everything to do with attention. Yeah. And I think it I think that that's the other thing is that there's a little bit of weaponization that has occurred. And I think accountability helps address that too. Um, the final thing that I would say that's kind of that that we're developing in the short term is what we call stance. And so stance I think is really important. So there are Plenty of stories that come out where somebody says, I'm against the vaccine, but COVID is a very serious, deadly disease. Well, today you'd say that's an anti-vaxxer and, um, you know, I'm not even going to pay attention to this. But that's not what they're saying. Their stan- their stan- the, the stance is, the, is, is about the logic of the story. And so we, we start to look at what is the stance of this of this particular story or the, and, and people can learn a lot by the stance because that's opposing points of view sometimes that are all brought together in a, in a quality piece. 
versus immediately pulling out the one or two like politicized items that that indicate something that you don't agree with. That allows you to then dismiss the entire story. The entire the story. Altogether. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then I think the 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 where we're going with this is if you move forward into the world of YouTube and uh, Instagram and Rumble and Vimeo, there are more people coming on every day that no one knows that are talking about important things. How do you know the quality of that person? How do you know the source? How do you know what kind of, um, where that content came from? And 40% of Gen Z are in that direction. That's where they get their information. That's where they get their news. So we have a whole generation that are on TikTok, on all of these different platforms, and they're learning from those platforms. Not just entertainment. It's not just entertainment. It, they're developing points of view. As young people, they're getting a point of view, and they're going to take that forward. Um, is it? Don't we have a obligation to help them develop that media literacy, that critical thinking to say, you know what, this is just BS. And yeah, but that's not the case. And and then you go one further step and let's take the podcasts, for instance, which are really interesting. We know what happened in the case of Joe Rogan, right? Where um, if you were to take something, a piece of content out of context, you could imagine what it would look like. So take a Take some popular songs today, pull off the label and pull off the artist and read the words. You'd be like, I'm never going to say these words on radio. I'm not, <laughs> right? But it's the most popular song yeah. out there. So yeah. it's about content in context. Yeah. It's about the idea of seeing like through a prism different angles and try to get people to see that there's a that there's more dimension to the story than just this one thing that you're focused on. This is Fascinating, especially since you mentioned song lyrics. It just reminds me that California just enacted a measure to include as protected speech rap lyrics, which were <laughs> confessing or indicating, uh, you know, uh, that that the rapper had done some crime. So this is this is and this is and this is a fascinating area of First Amendment jurisprudence as well. But um, sorry, that's a that's that's a conversation for another another day. No, um, but it's it, but, but they're all related. Yeah, yeah. because. The the content in the context that it's being delivered is really important. Yeah. And yeah. I, th- I take your point. things are just so one-dimensional today uh, that, that people lose that. So trying to provide angles and trying to provide viewpoints is, is really, I think, valuable yeah. for education. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you've just now made me start thinking about TikTok as an educational platform, which is just terrifying. Um, so two of the factors uh, for, de- for determining <laughs> it, it is, yeah. I mean, it's- I, I, I have, I have this, I don't, I don't use TikTok. It is not on my phone. Uh, a guy who ran Russia operations at the CIA for 25 years told me don't download it. So I, <laughs> I'm not doing that. Uh, but I know I've watched TikTok videos and I just keep thinking like, oh, if people are actually using this as an educational resource and they are, and actually there are some interesting educational applications. I've seen, uh, I've seen nurses and doctors take to TikTok to dispel COVID myths and myths about the vaccine. And, and, you know, it's, it, it's, it's whatever you want to find is yeah. really there. Um, but to your point about using 
we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to consumers of information to make them better consumers of information because there are real consequences to society if we don't. And I think we're, we're now becoming aware of that, really painfully aware of, 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 of abdicating that responsibility. And, and, the, and in the wake of all that um, self-knowledge, there's also the fact that people love rating systems. Yeah. They love to be rated. Yeah. They, yeah. Everywhere oh, you yeah. go, they love to be rated. <laughs> yeah. So you rate everything. The, room Raider, rate my Zoom background. Let's rate everything. From the day they went to kindergarten, yep. they got rated, right? Yep. So they, so people operate on rating schemes. And if I go back to our premise, the largest source of information in the world is unrated. And when you think about that, it's almost incomprehensible because why isn't it yeah. rated? Right. Like why aren't there ramifications for publishing false and misleading information. Why, why is that not exist? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know two, two of the factors determining the secret score are title exaggeration and whether an article is clickbait. And those two concepts alone just show the incentive structure for these news organizations, right? We've talked before about how there's an actual job that an actual person does in a newsroom, which is to write headlines for stories they didn't write. <laughs> right. That's a thing. That's, yeah. a, that's a job. Yeah. And that alone is evidence of the uh, of the environment, the incentive structures that these organizations are operating by. So, um, yeah, let's. I want to talk a little bit about measuring lean because I can hear yep. people wondering, okay, but how do I trust this guy? How do I trust Seeker? How do I know yep. that the that the measurements of political lean that are baked into this algorithm, inputs and outputs, are not in themselves biased? And how yep. do you do that? Right? How do you differentiate between organizational lean within particular articles? Um, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've talked a lot on the show about how the traditional linear left, right continuum isn't effective when we're evaluating our politics for a couple of reasons. There's, you know, there's the horseshoe theory, right? Um, but there's also the reality that this, that this one dimensional spectrum cannot possibly capture what has happened to our politics. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, and the detachment of the MAGA movement from conservatism, right? So red is now a, a single col singular color right. being used to uh, describe or as a shorthand a, a an increasingly heterogeneous worldview, right? Right. Um, so I, I'd love to hear you speak to that, and and what are the ways you yeah. know that shift is impacting the bias scores? So it's evolving; it doesn't stay the same. So what you just said. Um, the, the, the original idea is that there are, you know, two, two, two parties in America, more or less, and then they can be described in a variety of concepts and self-described actually. And yet then as you introduced, when somebody has a hat that says, make America great, if it, if it weren't on Trump's head, if it was just sitting on a counter somewhere and we didn't even know about Trump, no one would have a problem with that. That's right. Those words, That's right. right? Those the words, red hat. Yeah. Th that would be fantastic. <laughs> like, yes, we all want to make America great. great because we live in America. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Right. But as you'd you see it on red hats, blue hats, <laughs> you'd see it everywhere, coffee cups, whatever, right. It, every airport. But what, uh, but what you, but now it's associated it's a with a, with a movement. It's a symbol and it's been named. 
that 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 concept has now a name <laughs> and so and it indicates something and so all of that is part of how you define uh what the what the meter looks like that we have and but it doesn't stop there because there'll be a new campaign that comes up and they'll and there'll be new words so the computer doesn't know words it knows ones and zeros and so what we train it on is that there are here are millions of documents that start to talk about these concepts and they are defined as you know if zero is the middle far one way to the right one way to the left what are the gradients of it so we attach the words but yeah. the computer doesn't know the words it just knows there's a pattern here of words that indicate this yeah. and we define what this is and this is just the definitions that the the parties give themselves mm. last week on our weekly roundup we discussed chat gpt um, and one of the things we talked about was mm-hmm. the increase in AI-generated news stories. Uh, Nina Schick, who I think you yep. mentioned and we've had on the show to talk about deep fakes, um, told Yahoo News that we might reach 90% of online content being generated by AI by 2025. Um, so I, I'm sure you think about this all the time, but what impact could AI-generated news stories have on search technologies, you know, as a, as a whole, and, and specifically, how do you think about dealing with that as you're developing um, a technology yeah. to help people consume these inf- this information um, better, to, 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 to decipher the credibility of the information they're consuming? So first, I think that um, the idea that 90% of the stories will be generated by, you know, an AI device Let's say that's true, but that also would mean that we've probably exponentially, exponentially increased, increased the volume, the volume right? of stories. Yeah. So the, the flip side to that is that those that are created by a human that have high quality should rank higher than those created by a machine uh, or synthetic content that um, may not be as have the same level of, let's say, credibility as a human authored uh, document, if if that can be true, but the part that's not obvious is that smart humans will use the AI to create this story to improve the value of it. So yeah. um, some might so use it to improve the persuasion of it. All all yeah. of those things will be present, and it will just be easy for a system to identify what's synthetic, what isn't. Um, the the and and that just becomes yet another metric. So the same qualities of journalism would apply. The only difference is maybe you'd have an indicator that said this is synthetic and this isn't. Okay. So now that we've sort of drawn, oh man. Okay. Th- this reminds me in that conversation with Nina. I you know I asked her um, because one of the big one of the there's so many problems with so many potential negative consequences of the rise of deepfake technology mm-hmm. and and the availability of deep tech deepfake technology in consumer hands right there's so many obvious uh potential bad outcomes here um and so one of the things i asked her was well what's the other side of this of this of this fight of this of the battle to control ai technology or the battle to account for this which is 
authentication. Okay, so now you're using AI to both generate the deepfake videos and to authenticate or deauthenticate the deepfakes, right? So there's a race going on on both sides of of the using the same technology, right? One to create a persuasive artificial representation of a human being and the other to detect whether it's an authentic <laughs> representation of a human being. And so using that as an analogy, I wonder if we're going to have the same thing in news media where you're going to have a proliferation of news media that is generated by AI and then potentially a proliferation of or maybe a race to develop some authenticating technology that can detect whether or not something was written by a robot in the first place. And so I wonder how you how you think about that and maybe like we ought to have some transparency rules about if we're going to if news if CNN's going to be writing content with a robot maybe we should know that right the the byline should be whatever the name of their ai is instead of <laughs> instead of you know the, the newsroom or whatever but if you take a if you if you kind of go up a notch and you say but if the ai authored document contains all the elements of a quality then does it matter? And so that's another point, which is, um, you know, humans are fallible and so are machines, but humans program the machines. So the, the idea is if there's a, if the test is that, do they, you know, either both have to subscribe to the quality, the journalistic principles that one lays out that everyone agrees to, if the machine written content is of high quality, then, then that's fine. Um, it, there's another argument which which is all about how um, you can use that technology to maybe uncover and dig deeper as a journalist than you might be able to in with today's tools. And so I could see an example of where, um, let's say you're a researcher in a particular area, you may deploy um, the the AI tool, which has a universe of of, of content that it's touched, you may go out because it's only as good as what it touches. So you may deploy it in a very rapid way to say, find me all the things related to this, but incorporate it into your story, which could be a more rapid way to assimilate a quality piece of journalism than somebody that has to spend a week sifting through all these sources themselves. But I'm always reminded of what uh, the, some of the work we did at the intelligence agencies, it, it was always not what we had. It's, it's not knowing what we were missing. And that's really the key to how you have to think about this is, you know, can the tools that you have help you find what you're missing? So can you set, can you set things in motion that find things you ordinarily just would not have, and have um, thought about? Does this bring them to you? <laughs> so it's always about what you don't know that counts. Yeah, and so how do you know is. what you don't know? What That's what. What what did what did he call them? Known unknowns. Yeah, is that how it went? Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> and there are there are there are other things like um, it was Rumsfeld when he was head of the CIA. But the other thing that I think of is that things like ChatGBT or products like that um, help discover what 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 I would call non obvious relationship. Non-obvious relationships are another thing that they can uncover. And that, of course, is really valuable to people. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What 
what is the what is the end goal here if there is one or what is that you know what's the next goal how do you want seeker to shape the news and shape industries because right now we've talked so far about the the value of this technology to consumers right and yep. i think we've sort of previewed how it could change news consumption um i i want to think a little bit about the industry you know the ecosystem, the economy that it that that you're entering into with this technology, um, and the potential for disruption in an industry that has already been disrupted by technology. So, how do you, how do you want how do you want it to change the news media industry, the landscape? What what would you like to uh, I would, see happen? I I think that. Um That the that transparent and I think quality and credibility should rise above popularity, and I think that everybody's capable of that. But there are, but the only way to get there is if is if there's a a focus on if there's a consumer desire to have it, and I think that. That desire has begun, so I think that that is a that'll be a good result. Where at some point there, and I'm not saying it is seeker alone, but at some point there is a rating system that goes across the web for all information that's consumed. There's accountability. There's a rating, and now people will have the same capability they have today: do searches, get social media, watch videos. But now they just know a little bit more about it. The same way you know about not to click on a piece of content because it's a virus. I want you to know the same thing about the content you're about to consume. That, to me, is the analogy in that it spreads to every form of media, every form of communication, that there's some quality control on it because then you can trust it. And so whether it's the analogy I gave about the credit reports or it's the reason that the banking system was built around SWIFT. There has to be credibility in the way that the network and the information flow. Otherwise, the noise is greater than the signal, and that's the and that and that's yeah. a decline. So you, uh, I'm paraphrasing here. Tell me if I got this right. But uh, if so, I would agree with it. You'd like to see n- news media organizations. Um, hold themselves to a credibility standard, right. and so you'd like to incentivize credibility over over popularity right. in this in this ecosystem. My question then, I'm totally with you. My question then is, how do you do that in an advertising driven business? So here's the other thing that's happened in the last four years. It used to be that every advertiser was deathly afraid of having their ad automatically placed next to pornography. Mm-hmm. But that has all that those filters have been built. That's a known problem, and it's solved. Now the problem is propaganda. I don't want my my hundred year old brand to be placed next to a piece of content that I don't agree with. Um, some of the let's call it the language or the concepts. But nobody was built for that. None of the none of the ads kind of serving technology had thought about that because these concepts are way more advanced in the last three years. Yes, there are terms that indicate racism and violence and misogyny and all these other things, but the concept of this content 
Um, which is why you don't see a lot of advertising placed against news because they're so deathly afraid of um, what's going to happen if I'm placed next to the yeah. worst piece of news. Yeah. So and a lot of news doesn't accept political advertising. For no, that, for, that for the reason. same yeah. right because it's all games yeah. like that, right? Yeah. So um, what what our system, what we're doing is we're offering to advertising agencies at the time. Prior to, it's called pre-bid, before the ad is placed against a piece of content, they can run it against the scoring system that you see on our site, only they work inside that company and they can say, I want to place the ad there or not. So it's a real-time scoring platform that that helps the advertiser in real time by programming the, let's call it the concepts of words that I don't want to be next to. And that's changed dramatically. Okay, so the potentials here are massive if you're successful, right? Making bias easier to navigate, um, pushing the media to acknowledge bias, um, um, changing consumer habits. Uh, yeah. So what are the biggest challenges is the question. How do, we, how, um, how do you plan to be successful? What's standing in the way? Really, of success, so, whether it's whether it's technology, culture, um, social, financial. How how do you how do you think so, about? So we we have um, we've been very lucky that we have uh, a broad group of uh, investors that have um, you know believed in the mission, and so uh, we've we've been able to you know raise sixty five seventy million dollars and poured that into building this, and there's um, quite a bit of you know interested parties to to invest more in it. Um, but the real, the real thing is to, um, in, in order to get above the noise, how do we get above the noise? And so what, and this is a difficult thing. So what we try to do is we try to find partners that are not politically oriented or motivated, let's say. And the reason for that is because we want our brand to be apolitical. This is not about politics, it's about the scoring platform across all sorts of content. And so how do you find people that can, that have a big audience, that are iconic, that, that can, that can pull, that can make people aware of what we're trying to do for media literacy or, um, you know, developing critical thinking. And so, um, we entered into a partnership with, um, with one person, uh, Tony Robbins, who um, is one of the biggest motivational speakers, has thousands of Fortune, you know, 100 companies on his roster. And, you know, he's creating a, um, a series of interviews with people who have been affected by false and misleading information across the board. And um, we'll use that as a, as a way to create some unique content. So he's, um, he has people that are from all walks of life, comedians, um, some royalty, um, all, um, political candidates, um, you know, businessmen, sports players. He's trying to cut across and just tell us your story about how it affected you and, you know, why it's important for people to solve that problem. And then we went, to the other side of the spectrum and we said, okay, now we need somebody who is a hero to young people and who young people will pay attention to. And so uh, one of the people that we went to was a, um, an outdoorsman called Bear Grylls. He has the largest show on Discovery Channel. 
And he is an outdoor adventurer, but the and and he had at one point the largest audience uh, on over three billion impressions as he brought the prime minister of uh, India up into the Himalaya mountains, and he took uh, President former President Obama up into the mountains. So he's famous to kids. And so he has 70 million um, scouts that all around the world that follow him. And so he is building underneath Seeker what we would call Seeker Planet, which is a unique site that talks about everything to do with the environment, pollution, um, conservation, preservation, everything. And so... Um, and and that'll be a space that um, you can go for um, how to understand like what's really happening in a rainforest or what's really going on with, you know, an iceberg, but without a political overtones or consequences. So we're, we're bringing people to, that can bring audiences to Seeker because that's the other way that we get the network effect. This is so exciting, but okay, what happens when Google st- what happens when they show up and they want to buy you for a billion dollars? Okay, sorry, make it two billion dollars. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because um, I, I don't I don't think that's the case because one thing I learned twenty years ago um, when there's a monopoly that exists. The only way it can continue to exist is to give somebody else a little bit of market share. And so Google is happy to have other companies like me out there and growing. And maybe when we hit, you know, 500 million in sales or a billion in sales, they pay attention. But right now they're worth a couple of trillion dollars. And rather than get broken up, let's let's give Seeker uh, their, their percentage of the market. So one or two billion would be a low number for us. <laughs> Pat Kondo, this has been one of the most encouraging conversations uh, I've had uh, and satisfying conversations I've had about um, this really, really thorny topic uh, that's obviously not going away. Um, Anything else you want to leave listeners with? By the way, what is it? I should tell them, um, you can go to Seeker dot com, dot com and um you know just hit the news tab it yeah. works just like google hit the news tab over on the right hand side you'll see a whole bunch of filters um that you can use type in any type in like classified documents in the news tab right <laughs> and play with this tool because um it might actually open your eyes to some of the news sources that you read cons- you know regularly and how you know whether Look at some of the stuff that you would normally read, but look at the way it's been scored to understand where it might fall in this um, in in this landscape. I think you might be surprised. I was surprised at some of the some of the way mm-hmm. the stuff was rated and why. And so, um, so I would encourage people to go do that. Um, anything else you want to? Any final thoughts? Um, my on, my on only topic? thought is that uh, my final thought is this: that you know. Democracies are built on uh, facts um, that 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 can be supported, and our democracy. There are you know two hundred and fifty years of facts, but there are also people who would work to kind of erode the foundation of our democracy by um, putting alternatives out there. And one of the areas that we're focused next in research is what is a fact? 
and you'll be surprised how complicated that subject is. And and what is truth? And that is where I think we're headed, which is um, there are foundational facts um, and there are always additions and embellishments. But if you if you let that foundation erode, then you hasten the decline. So we're all about surfacing, making it available and allowing people to see, you know, all these different points of view. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Wonderful. Come back anytime. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Pat. Thank you. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.